This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Welcome to Headscarves and Good Yarns with me, Amal Abdullahi. The show is all about talking about race, diversity, and everything in between, all in the hopes of empowering a more empathetic Aotearoa. We talk about all these huge life things through the lens of people's lives and stories. I hope every yarn you take a wee gem from it and expands your heart and mind just a wee bit more. Kia ora, Welcome to another episode of Headscarves and Good Yarns. Um, super grateful that y'all are tuning in. Um, for this episode, I wanted to introduce part two of the corridor that I had with Jenny. We recorded an amazing two-hour conversation where we spoke about everything from activism and solidarity to your own whakapapa um, to... Um, their research which is all about treaty education and so for this part um, of the conversation we really go deep into um, you know one of the key aspects of what it means and what it looks like to honor titiriti which is focusing on relational relationships um, so what is the the d- dynamic or the energy between tangata so people of the land and tangata titiriti, people of the tree. So, you know, those who are considered visitors to the land. Um, what should the energy or the dynamic of that relationship be? And it actually was really, really um, refreshing. And um, I think, you know, and, and we talk about it when, when we get deep into the conversation, but, you know, there's a lot of a sense of ownership and uh, a sense of loss of those who do have the privilege in the majority. But the refreshing thing that Danny really pointed out is that um, there is no, there is space for everyone, people to look after their own business, their own land, their own culture, but to also create space for, you know, people to to learn how to relate to each other, which I think is really, really important and um, something that we just don't talk enough about, I think, um, especially when we're just generally talking about race relations here in Aotearoa. Um, and that brings me to another point that we really talk about a lot in this episode, which is, you know, what actually is the concept of race? Because if you compare it to, you know, what the race relations corridor looks like in countries like especially America, we don't actually talk about um, race very much as opposed to ethnicity. And um, so we talk about, you know, the the pros and the cons of discussing race and, and what it actually means, especially because it's like used um, the same way that ethnicity is used and actually they are quite different things from each other. And once you understand the difference, you can see how um, you can see how the lack of us Kiwis talking about race comes up in our um, race relations. And so we really unpack that a lot in this part of the episode. Um, we also get really deep into what empathy as a skill actually looks like. Um, which we did touch upon briefly in the first part, but we really get deeper into it um, in this next part of the episode, which I think is a very powerful reframe of talking about empathy and, you know, what it what it actually looks like in practice um, and, you know, how developing that skill is actually so foundational to what it means to advocate, what it means to be an ally, and and what it means to get behind a a co-papa. And so, yeah, this next part of the corridor is very, very enriching. Um, So, oh, there's just so much, so many places to go. In this, like, discussion that we've been having about Titiriti um, and Pakiha, I was wondering if you have any thoughts about where Tau Iwi fit with that. Mm. Um, 
because you know I I'm not a Pakeha person but I'm still definitely a visitor this land and um, in in Tiriti education yeah where does the identity of um, Toiwi fit in with that if you've had a, if you've thought about that but if you yeah, think yeah. that's a okay <laughs> you know I, I, I have, I've had to a little bit because that that landscape has changed so much over the last few decades um, with the caveat that I'll try to be careful because obviously that's the um, like uh, Toewi of colour are people that I can't speak for mm-hmm. um, but I guess what I can speak to is how um, the practices of Pakeha Tiriti education have sort of um, evolved in response to those you know, big demographic changes. Um, so basically from, I want to say like the 1980s onward, um, migration to Aotearoa New Zealand became a bit easier. Um, so that's when we start seeing these big demographic shifts where it's not just Māori and Pākehā um, and um, a Pacifica population. Um, but then, you know, you've got and then a handful of Chinese people and Indian people and Vietnamese people and so on. But now it's becoming like more and more and more migration is happening, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a part of this larger neoliberal global academic buzzwords kind of <laughs> stuff that's bigger in scope than just this country. Um, so people are coming here way more and you see a lot more diversity in, um, uh, you know, especially metropolitan areas like Auckland in particular. Um, where now um, treaty education up there, um, there's one organisation that's uh, getting, or some of its members at least, are getting involved in my research, um, Tangata Tariti, is what they call themselves, because... People of the treaty. Yeah, which is not just Pākehā, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, so there have been shifts, which I'll circle back to, but because um, historically as well... Um, there just as it's just as true that there that you know that Pakeha do take up a lot of space. We love to center ourselves. It's a part of whiteness. It's a part of that individualist mindset, right? And that way, that lens for viewing the world. Um, but at the same time, it's equally true that part of the reason that treaty education has historically been so Pakeha centric is because you know at the time that it was starting to become a thing, we were still one of the only games in town in terms of people that were on this land in relation with Maori. <laughs> So um, there's a reason it was quite tailored to uh, Pakeha. Mm. Um, so in the early yeah, so in the early days, you know, like um, in the early days of colonization, you know, it was a primarily Maori Pakeha relationship. Um, you still had uh, uh, Chinese gold miners um, who had their own relationship historically to Tangata Whenua, and uh, Matua Moana Jackson tells a really really cool story about that. Um, and um, you still had, yeah, Tangata Pacifica, or Tangata Moana, excuse me, um, Pacifica peoples who, um, you know, were uh, especially like in the post-war years being brought in for sort of migrant labour. Um, and then, you know, there was a racist backlash them staying in the country after that, and that led to all kinds of um, really, really, really racist shit from Pakeha. And mm-hmm. so um, everyone who was non, you know, and so in the early stages of treaty education, everyone was kind of doing it together. Um, from what I've been told and what I've read and um, it got to the point where the burden on Māori to do that education was becoming exploitative in and of itself so um, the fancy academic term for that is uh, epistemic exploitation so we're taking advantage of um, uh, of an oppressed person um, to emburdening them with educating us about the nature of that oppression um, as the oppressors, effectively. Um, so that became a burden that was too great for Māori to bear in the sense that you know they wanted to, they'd rather much rather be focusing on developing Māori infrastructure, Māori social systems, Māori society, right? Things that and they, bring them healing yeah, and exactly and there's benefit there. But yeah, and so they have every right to do that to build, to heal, to reconstruct. And that should that's you know the, from from what I've seen that's that's their political priority for the most mm-hmm. part by and large. I mean, I'm not trying to again try not to speak for, but um, you know that was a political priority that people. Didn't, that Māori did not, you know, wanted to prioritise. But, you know, when we keep drawing, as Tauriwi is, uh, broadly, Pākehā specifically, keep drawing them back in, teach us, teach us, teach us, you know, that is a comp- it defeats the purpose of that education in a way. Absolutely. So the discussion shifted toward, um, you know, how can we do this... Um, 
how can we, how can we how can we help kind of thing, right? Um, and so part of that, the, one of the results of that discussion was um, basically realizing, you know, um, as Pakeha and other Toiwi and um, you know the Pacific cousins, we needed to take on the responsibility of educating our own so that Maori don't have to. Mm. Um, and there are still Maori involved in the treaty education movement. Like again, this is hugely broad brushstrokes and not speaking for individuals um, or trying to speak for peoples that are not my own. Um, but that was the, 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 some of the broad, broader trends that were happening. Um, so um, after that, like this caucusing practice began to develop as well. So you know we might all need to um, learn about the treaty and the history of the treaty and how it is you know an underlying social contract for being on this land um, in a more equitable way than through colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but how we learn about that. It's going to differ based on whether you're Pākehā, whether you are um, Tongan or Samoan, um, whether you are a, a different kind of migrant entirely. Um, and so, yeah, so those practices... So early on, you know, it used to be like Tangata Whenua, Pākehā and Tangata Moana kind of all doing these workshops and stuff together. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Pākehā would make that an unsafe place for everybody else. So Tangata Pacifica, Tangata Moana kind of broke off and like, hey, we need to figure out our own, you know, we have our own different relationship to mm-hmm. our um, Pacific cousins um, than these Pākehā do, these Palangi do. Um, and, um, you know, in Māori, we're like, well, we got, we've got to do our own thing. We want to decolonize, not, um, and we can't do that if we're having to educate the oppressor all the time. Mm-hmm. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to stop oppressing. <laughs> yep, that's, yeah, that's accurate. So, you know, so again, so everybody else kind of broke off and Pākehā like, okay, well, we've got this distinct problem. We've got whiteness. Um, very deeply internalizes and it, you know it structures our society it structures our way of thinking it structures our interpersonal relationships um, it, structures, it structures our worldviews so we had a very different challenge with regards to Tariti education from other peoples mm. um, and so that's kind of become the focus of my research because it's you know one that I'm more deeply embedded in and have more of a responsi- more of a responsibility to than say um, I have a colleague who is doing research um, on Southeast Asian understandings of Tetriti, um, which is obviously not something I can speak for, and she is much better positioned to speak for, um, or speak to, I guess. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so I think we're reaching a point where Tetriti education is starting to develop to meet specific needs. Um, and yeah, that's something that my research is very keen on, kind of exploring further and seeing how it's um, how it's going. Um, especially, what I what I have seen so far though is that um, this is a far more true for like metropolitan areas than mm-hmm. for more provincial ones. So Auckland is definitely you know it's in the name now. Tangata Tariti is one of the big treaty education collectives up there. So you see quite a bit more of it um, in that kind of space, um, whereas some of the um, and it's, and it's not even from a lack of intention or, you know, you know, this is still an anti-racist movement or trying to be. Um, so it's not like there's a lack of good intent for like a, a more provincial um, treaty education collective. It's just a lack of capacity because it's, you know, it's an underdeveloped regionals rather than the city centers where mm. all the, you know, the budgeting and the priority goes to because urbanism. <laughs> That's unfortunately the way that it goes, doesn't it? Mm. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's so interesting. Like when um, we were talking about this ages ago when we first met up, I was of particular interest to me. Um, just for a long time, even though I came to New Zealand when I was two years old, for such a long time I was very, very uncomfortable engaging with Te Tiriti, engaging with even just calling myself like a New Zealander or I'm mm. this is part of who I am just because as Toiwi I was like I'm very unsure of my place here and so that's awesome to hear that the movement is going towards that space of how do we speak to people where they're at and that acknowledges their experience and their understanding and and needs because if we don't address that then you know we're missing out on that opportunity of engaging with people communities and this very important conversation um you brought up the r word and i would love to talk a little bit more about because um, when you were talking about settler colonialism, um, it kind of tugs at this wider conversation around race. And so, how do how do you, in your understanding, in your in your research, um, how do you differentiate between 
settler colonialism and race and then to further that question how do you when we're talking about race how does that differ from whiteness um, because I feel like when we talk about race relations here in Aotearoa it's in the word race relations but we actually the concept of race I feel like we don't talk about it too much here in Aotearoa and I'd love if you could shed some some light on that mm, yeah I've thought about that a lot this year um so uh, I've gotten written down here some quotes from um, from some scholars that I've read that I think are really um, illuminating of this dynamic, especially because, yeah, like you've pointed out, we don't really talk about race as much here as, you know, you might in an American political context. Um, and I really don't hope, I really hope I don't butcher her name here, um, but the scholar activist uh, Saming Mok, um, I think she says it best. Uh, she says, this conceptual merging of racial and ethnic formation arises from American contexts where race has been the starting point and ethnicity is what has expanded the discourse beyond um, totalizing narratives of the body. Sorry, that's a bit dense. So I'll unpack it before I move on. Um, and so growing up in the States, I kind of get what that means because um, everything there, like we just said, is kind of all about race. That's like kind of the dominant political mode, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, when you fill out a census form there, you take a race box, um, as opposed to here where it's an ethnicity. Um, it's history, you know, the American history very much birthed the very concept of race um, and played a huge role. So it's overt there because it's been institutionalized from the start. Was, sorry if my understanding of history is incorrect, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but the way that I've understood it, and it could be it could be wrong, is that this concept of race was kind of used and produced to justify um, slavery, or like this idea that mm. because it's a racial thing, it's therefore biological, and so therefore there are some people who are just inherently superior to others is that kind of yeah no that's, 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 that's definitely not inconsistent with my understanding um yeah because uh like you know in the, in the early stages of like the transatlantic slave trade um that was like the culmination of this idea of race developing um where um you know you had the early stages of the colonization in north america um and you might have a lot of like indentured servants um, in those communities and uh, I'm doing a horrible job of condensing this um, effectively but basically like you know there were working class uprisings happening well there wasn't really a working class yet we weren't fully in capitalism yet um, but there were definitely you know the poor were rising up and the rich were like fuck fuck what do we do <laughs> um, and so um the, so one understanding of um, how race developed is that um, their response to uh, fuck fuck what do we do is um, creating these new divisions between the everyday people um, so you know you'd have communities of, um, of, of Europeans of Africans of, of indigenous Americans um, who had very different relationships with each other uh, documented even before um, like race started becoming colonial policy in the original 13 colonies that became the United States. Um, so, yeah, so, so race was there from the beginning of that colonial project. Um, uh, race originated in that colonial project, you could probably argue. Um, there is a body of scholarship that kind of wants to flip it on its head a little bit and say that, um, that race actually precipitated capitalism. Um, I don't want to say which one came first. I think it's a very, um, because of that. I haven't actually been able to dive into that literature yet. I want mm -hmm. to. Um, so where I'll set for now is I'll say it's a, it's a very chicken or egg question. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I do know at least one of the framings of the two, and I, but I just, I'm aware now that there's two, and I want to I want to lean more into that. It's the limit. Yeah. That's the limit of my understanding at the moment. Um, but so you can see from that how like race in America was very foundational and always has Absolutely. been a part of its history um, since it since it became named America um, rather than like in contemporary um, Indigenous Americans prefer to call it Turtle Island, right? Um, so in America, then ethnicity as a concept is kind of confusing because everything there is almost literally in terms of black and white all the time, right? Um, and then there's everybody else. <laughs> mm. um, but it's all about race, so so ethnicity being same, same, but different from race confuses that configuration in America a little bit. 
because um, I guess race is you know this kind of invention um, of the Enlightenment to divide people mm-hmm. um, so that the capitalists and uh, can reign supreme. And um, you know one of the dynamics that we've seen play out is how um, whiteness is kind of from the top down. Um, so those social divisions so that everyday people are against each other rather than against the people who keep them from having the basic their basic needs met kind of thing, right? Um, so maybe a better way of not framing it as like this caused that, but more that we can see this dynamic playing out now and that's not really productive. Yeah. Um, so in Aotearoa, oh, sorry, so that's like, right, so that's kind of, you know, what race is is this it's a social construct of course mm-hmm. um that you know is using fake bullshit 19th century sciences um skull size determines your intelligence level and oh, bullshit God. like that right um but it's that level of thinking uh that has set up um these divisions between peoples um ethnicity as a concept in sociology so that's my field um is less malignant than that I guess it's, mm-hmm. it's less evil <laughs> um in that it's uh, more, um, uh, it's more about how you define the people that you belong to. So ethnicity can include a culture, a language, and a shared ancestry. Yeah. Um, but it's a bit more self-defined. It's not projected onto your people. So, um, so like you know, um, uh, that's, that's a bit. It's a bit different. You can you can be. Um, it's easier to say that you're proud of your ethnicity than it is to be proud of your race, right? That is, yep, that's true. <laughs> because it's it's a less, um, I won't say it's less politicized, but it's less, yeah, it's less of a nasty force. Mm. <laughs> um, but because of that, um, in, in Aotearoa, it's kind of the other way around, right? right? Like, this, you know, race is not the foundational structure here, like, in the same way that it is in America. Um, in some ways it still is, but not um, as deeply, um, so, you know, uh, so I put down here, in Aotearoa is the other way around, where we are still... Oh, this is, Sammy, this is the rest of um, Sammy Mock's quote, excuse me. Um, in Aotearoa, it is the other way around, where we are still waiting to take what is needed from the vocabulary of critical race theory so we can speak clearly about race, racism, and white supremacy and do the work of undoing it. Because, yeah, because we don't tick a race box here. We tick an ethnicity box, which gets heralded as, like, a, a, a one of the ways in which we're better than America, Right. Um, almost our own post-racial society, which we know is not true. Um, yeah, we've got issues here, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But even, like, a couple months ago, I would have thought, oh, yeah, no, no, that is a good thing. That's a better thing. Um, but a really good critique of that um, way of thinking that I read since um, comes from, again, I'm hoping I'm not butchering this name, but Madis um, Azarmandi. Um, so she did a PhD in 2017 um, that showed how very often now the categories of Māori and Pākehā um, get reduced to their cultural differences, um, to aspects of ethnicity that differ, um, and race gets completely erased from the conversation as a result. Um, obviously, but it still hasn't been erased from the social reality. White mm-hmm. supremacy still informs the colonization of Aotearoa, because mm-hmm. um, white supremacy is a global system, and we can pretend we're better than everybody else, but we're still implicated in that system. It's another bit of like that individualism, that exceptionalism that says, "Oh, we, we're not, you know, we're doing this better than other places. We don't, you know, um, everything is, you know, all of our government departments are bilingual and have bilingual names now. Um, look how, you know, entrenched, you know, these aspects of Maori society are in our colonial government." Um, but at the same time, you know, look at the prisons. Look at the, I hate this phrase, I want it to die, but the disproportional representation in negative mm-hmm. statistics. See who plays, see who's present in that, you know? Um, and you'll see that, like, the, the, the idea that race is not part of our social reality is a lie. <laughs> It is. There's a lot to unpack, <laughs> um, but just I, I have this understanding of what the difference between race and ethnicity is. But when you were saying in America you tick race boxes, what would that look like? Like, what would the options be to tick? Would it? Are you meaning like? Like a census. Like, oh, so, okay. like, if you're taking, if you're doing a census, for instance, and it asks you in New Zealand, they would ask you your ethnicity, and you, mm-hmm. it would be um, New Zealand European slash Pakeha, mm-hmm. be Maori, it would be other, and you know there'd be other options, um, including the option other fill in the blank, right? Yep. Um, 
which again like you know that's probably a bit more symptomatic of the idea of ethnicity um, mm -hmm. where it's a bit more you can own it a little bit more it's not projected onto you as much as races that's true um, so um, other like, gives you that opportunity to sort of self-describe um, which I uh, I don't remember when I did my last year in United States census because um, I'm I'm a dual citizen, so I would be counted oh, in it. True. But um, yeah, I just can't remember um, if they have an other box at the bottom or not. Yeah. Um, but in that situation, it would be you know you're you're taking your race, so it'd be it'd be white. It would be African American, Asian American, Latino, oh, or maybe it's maybe maybe they've upgraded and it's Latinx now. Um, <laughs> uh, the more gender neutral yeah. approach to it. Uh, that those communities use a lot now from what I've seen um, but um, but yeah it, it's 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 same same but different right because here it's you know we're measuring ethnicity which is probably a better thing to do in some respects in race but maybe not um, in the sense of like, race is still part of our social reality and what this um, reducing of all of these discussions in our context here to ethnicity and cultural difference and um, those kinds of things when in fact you know white supremacy is still a big part of what plays out here um, mm, absolutely. is is is, is I, I'm really hesitant I guess to say that one thing is better than another necessarily but to talk I understand what you're saying though to talk about ethnicity to the point where race is erased from the conversation yeah. when it actually informs a huge part of people's experiences and mm. reality I think yeah. Is, is, is harmful. Yeah, and like, I think I finally found a way of explaining why things in, in, in New Zealand... Um, sorry, let me do that accent a little bit thicker. New Zealand um, <laughs> are not necessarily better than elsewhere in the world, aside from like objective things like our COVID response at the beginning of the pandemic, <laughs> which you know categorically saved thousands of lives. Um, you know, aside from things like that, it's like um, the way I, I explained it to someone who was new to the country recently, and I was like, "Oh, this actually works." Um, is we are at a different point in the history of the colonial project in this country than other um, colonized places are. Mm. So, you know, in, in North America, it's been going on for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Um, even Australia, it predates what happened here by about... Uh, you know, there was some stuff going on in the 18th, and most stuff here happened in the 19th um, in terms of the beginning of colonization. Um, but I said, you know, we're way earlier on in the colonial project, so Māori might have a more... Um, more of a political presence in society um, but what's not different between what's happening here and what's happening elsewhere in the world is the nature of that relationship it's still a colonial relationship it's still a white supremacist relationship and those things are going to achieve a same result in the long run if we don't push back we're just at a different point in that history of that mm. long run than other places so it's a matter of geography, not um, better relationships. <laughs> yeah. I understand what you're saying. If we're to translate this distinction of race and ethnicity to talking about um, titiriti education, or I think essentially what I'm trying to ask is, well, now that we've got this understanding of the difference between race and ethnicity and the fact that we don't talk about it enough in Aotearoa, how could we incorporate talking about race into our corridor when we're talking about race relations here, when we're talking about settler colonialism, when we're talking about um, titiriti education? How can we talk about race more? Or even mm. just in a more social setting, like with family and friends. <laughs> how we, yeah, how can we talk about race in a like safe and productive way? Hard out. Um, so firstly, I'll say that... like. Um, the very early stages of the Tiriti education movement um, weren't necessarily focused on Tiriti. Mm -hmm. um, so very often, one of the um, sort of the um, the, the early uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the cosmology or the mythology of the origins of the movement. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say myth, I guess in this case, I don't mean it as like it's not true. It's just um, it's a factor. Mm -hmm. Is um, there was the big Springbok tour protests and. Well, I guess they happened a couple of tour, rugby tours before 1981, but it was the 1981 Springbok tour that generated enormous protests across the country. Um, you know, because allowing the Springboks to play 
and here um, was seen as an endorsement of South African apartheid. Yeah. And so everybody was, well, not everybody, of course, there was, if, if there wasn't, it wouldn't be as <laughs> that big a deal as it was, but mm-hmm. there was massive protests and people trying to disrupt the actual like rugby games, um, big police violence cracking down even on Pakeha who were protesting. Oh. Um, and and you know in all of this like uprising against uh, against South African apartheid particularly discussions actually happened um, around the co- it were happening around the country as a part of this movement and um, the um, that led to some of those early discussions around learning about the treaty so you know the the protests against the uh, the, the the what is it halt all racist tours heart was one of the organizations that was like or the collectives that was really organizing some of those protests as a part of that movement um so yeah there was a lot of anti-racist energy um but it wasn't really directed against domestic issues yet um so part of that strategic change in direction um, was starting to talk about Teteriti specifically yeah. because at that point, you know, huge chunks of the country didn't even know it existed. Whoa. It was not, you know, it wasn't common knowledge. Like, it was news to people that, hey, there's this treaty we have with Māori kind of thing. And so that's, so that was this new uh, kind of strategic orientation for anti-racist movements. And that made sense um, as one pillar of it, as, or as the f- singular focus at the time, um, because again, at the time, the country was not exclusively but largely Maori Pakeha. Mm. Um, so Teteriti became the focus of anti racist efforts for a long time because it was like, hey, here's this foundational aspect of our country that's not recognized as such. We need to do something about that. And that could have flow on the fix for all of our other sort of anti racist efforts. Mm. So. What happened, you know, so, and of course, a lot has changed since then. Things have gotten a bit more neoliberal. Mm. Things have, um, uh, you know, the, the, the society has become a lot more globalized. We have the World Wide Web. All these big societal changes have happened. Um, there are a lot, you know, and so the, and the country is now a lot more ethnically um, and I suppose racially diverse um, than it was at the time. So now we've got these two competing kind of, well, they shouldn't be competing, and I'm, I'm going to make that case in a second, uh, but we've got these two different discourses around how to um, navigate our race relations. Mm. We've got the biculturalism on one hand, yes, right? Yeah. So there's the Pakeha culture and there's the Maori culture. Um, and you know, and so in the '90s, biculturalism became this buzzword, and it became this dirty word because white people ruined it. <laughs> um, but you see, this like um, that biculturalism was important as an idea um, because it recognized the um, the treaty relationship. Yeah, biculturalism was uh, was it was about. Um, you know, it didn't always go so far as co-governance in the, in, in the areas that it needed to, um, at the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not to say this is a discourse that's in the past, it's still relevant, which is why I'm talking about it. But at the time, it was, um, it was, it was the movement. It's where it was at. It's where, like, this, was, this was how we can um, challenge white supremacy is by seeding this ground and thinking about biculturalism as this truly shared space. Um, so, you know, if we've got the, the rangatiratanga space where Māori are doing their own thing and advancing the needs of their people within the treaty relationship, we've got the kawanatanga space where, um, at the time, Pākehā, but again, that's shifting, are doing that work as well to advance our, our basic needs and whatnot. Um, you still have a relational space where they have to come together. And that was kind of what biculturalism was sort of laying the theoretical ground for in a way. So that's, that's, that's the biculturalism. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, we are now part of a global society where, you know, we're enormous, which is, you know, indicated in part by, like, you know, the enormous ethnic diversity that we have comparative to the 1980s now. Um, but, you know, uh, no, globalism is, globalization is too, too big a rabbit hole. I'm not going down there. Um, there's, bad, there's bad things about it, too. But there's, a lot, you know, there's a lot of cultural exchange that's possible um, in this context. Uh, and that's where that multiculturalist frame comes from. So we get the biculturalism, but then we realize, okay, it's not just two peoples and at play in this country anymore. There's multiple. There's several. Um, and even then, you know, you could maybe be like, okay, well, if there's a bicultural thing going on, what about Tangata Moana, Pacifica? Um, so, um, 
there, yeah, so there's the biculturalism, and then there's the multiculturalism, which is just that better way of being like, we should respect everybody's cultures and these really basic ideas of just basic human dignity to people who come from different backgrounds as you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, at this present moment, it would seem like, okay, well, if we're talking in that space of, of, of multiculturalism, maybe, maybe biculturalism is kind of outdated because um, it doesn't account for all these peoples. Mm-hmm. But what I've come to learn in the last couple of months is um, that it might be a, a, a better way to think about it as them coexisting um, because that biculturalism is what helps to sort of um, enshrine Tetiriti, first of all, because again, that's what it was for. Um, and while, you know, while ethnically the country has become a lot more diverse, you know, our institutions that make up the state and make up um, our social services that make up society, um, those were created by Pakeha, and so they still have, you know, our fingerprints on them, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that biculturalism is still necessary for keeping those institutions in check in a way mm-hmm. um, so so there's a that aspect of biculturalism that multiculturalism can't really speak to because it doesn't necessarily encompass Tetiriti and the other way that um, like the Maori Pakeha relationship or even just for Maori it's not necessarily great to be lumped into multiculturalism is that it sort of ends up with Maori being conflated into the BIPOC acronym on their own land I see. And that's not to say that the, the BIPOC acronym isn't useful in certain contexts, um, which again, I'm, I'm, I'm getting really close to um, speaking for rather than two here, but I'm, um, so bear with me. But, um, but in Aotearoa, um, reducing Māori to another group of people of colour is probably not the best idea, given the indigenous politic that yeah, is so, so important here, right? Um, so, yeah, so what I didn't realize at the start of this year, basically, is that it's quite easy that um, for every people's benefit here that we kind of need to figure out how to balance both. Um, both is good. <laughs> mm. um, and there's re- yeah, there's reasons to continue kind of engaging through frameworks of both. At the same time, that biculturalist frame, again, starts to squeeze... It goes both ways, because, like... I'll just start repeating myself in a second, but um, but yeah, the bicultural thing can start to neglect Tauri people of color, mm-hmm. um, but the um, but the multiculturalist frame uh, has a um, tendency to marginalize Manafinua. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think I always thought that multiculturalism and biculturalism were in competition with each other, and mm-hmm. only one like you could only have one. But I think that. To, to pick one would actually deny the reality of you know where the direction well not even the direction that Aotearoa is headed like we have this diverse communities living together now mm. but if we want any kind of progressive change we have to kind of acknowledge that reality of those you know the, how can we create space for both because yeah. I don't think we'd ha- we have to kill one <laughs> yeah that just gave me an idea that's like very very half-baked here but um a long time ago um in th- uh you know in queer community discourses where it was like um which one's better bisexual or pansexual and you know people get competitive about things like that um i saw a definition of bisexual that i thought was really kind of powerful which was um the bi meaning same and other genders mm-hmm. rather than just men and women Oh, true. Um, so, you know, that's just yeah. a way of being sort of more inclusive of the, of the framing of it, um, but still, like, um, and distinguishing that maybe from pansexual as, like, um, you know, it's, that would be attracted to everybody kind of regardless of gender. Um, whereas here it matters, it's the same and other, and it's about the gender, but maybe pan it's not. Um, so still being quite inclusive about it on both counts. Um I'm just wondering if maybe one of the ways of um, we could take that conversation of um, the biculturalism versus the multiculturalism, um, especially in like a, a Tariti sort of structure where we've got the Kawana Tonga sphere, us, the Tonga Tariti, and the, um, and, uh, the, the Rangatira space for Māori, is the Kawana Tonga space now is really diverse, but maybe that's the biculturalism is, is same culture, so Māori culture mm-hmm. is the default here. Um, and others, so not just Pakeha, but others in that space. Oh, I 
see that reframing just makes a big difference. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's not competing and in direct competition with each other. It's like, oh, yeah. there's space for both. Yeah. There's a really of, inclusive way of thinking about it. Yeah, and that, and then maybe that maybe that is a useful way of going about it. I mean, you know, the, the academic and me, the, the critical scholar, is still like, hmm, now what are the problems with that? Okay, we can't take that too far. Um, <laughs> Because, like, you know, the, the treaty was between Māori and the Crown. And the Crown, um, you know, like, form... And, you know, it's in, the, it's in the text of the treaty. It's with the Crown. It's with Queen, um, Queen Victoria at the time, I think. Um, and so, um, you know, there, we, there's still some work to do for us to sort of um, reframe what the... I don't know if the I don't know if the work is to re- reframe what the crown is so that it is representative of all the different peoples plural mm-hmm. that make up um, the to- like the the Tangata Tiriti space, um, but there's still like a, a you know a long-standing relationship between Maori and Pakeha that like sort of predates most but not all of the others in a way, um, which again like still feels like it's Pakeha recentering thing going on there. Um, but there's, you know, there's still that question of like these institutions of Pakeha. You know, our our health system is not modelled after an Indian system; it's modelled after a British one. Our go- our centre of government is uh, based on Westminster Parliament, not That's true. Um, not like uh, uh, um, Arangatira and Ariki sort of um, leadership structures. Um, you know, so there's there's still that question of like the the the, the Pakeha. Um, structures I guess mm. um, that biculturalism still has to account for and not just um, while non while non Pakeha Tangata Tiriti like you know perhaps benefit from those in ways that Maori don't um, you're less responsible for their construction <laughs> that's right I understand what you're trying to say here yeah oh, there's there's so, there's so many so many things to consider um and to and to think about um, when you mentioned the academic in you, that kind of brings me back to a question that I wanted to ask you about how you know you're doing this mahi in the context of um, the academic world, in the context of research, in the context of your PhD, and I would love to get your thoughts on. Um, you know, what responsibility in general do you think universities owe to social justice change? And, mm-hmm. like, as you as an individual, why were you like, actually, I want to do this type of work in in a research academic setting? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think, I think the university owes it to us, us in the most broadly defined way, um, to, to be... You know, to live up to that idea that it's the critic and conscience of society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, um, I you know, I operate in the social sciences and the humanities. You know, which is not to say that um, you know someone in physics, for instance, can't participate in being the critic and conscience of society because mm-hmm. that's not their field. Like that's not true. One of my closest union colleagues is doing her PhD in physics and like has been deeply involved in the union, right? Um, that's still being a critic and conscious of society and making sure that the university is also acknowledging that the university is itself part of society and not immune from that <laughs> that that scope right uh, from that from that scrutiny um, so because universities as a concept also just kind of they, they predate the west if the west is this construct that emerged five centuries ago with the enlightenment with capitalism with white supremacy and the, and race itself um uh, universities that we have today are certainly um, marred by those things and structured by those things um, but at the end of the day that still means that um, two, it means two things right um, it means that um, they came before so they're not compl- I don't think they're write-offs like being, mm-hmm. in, being, in, the, being in the institution so to speak because um, it wasn't like the I feel like the earliest like Identifiable university was in the Arab world. Maybe I'm not sure. I, I yes, I have come across that fact as well. Yeah, so yes. you know, it's, it's not a West thing necessarily, um, but Western universities obviously have very Western qualities <laughs> that we just listed. So, um, but that's not. But you know, as a, as a site of, of of producing knowledge. Um, you know, I come from social sciences where a lot of us come from to position that like knowledge isn't out there to be discovered, which, you know, when you're a physicist, you might think that, but for the social sciences, it's like, 
everything's a social construction. So actually, what's maybe more valuable is to think of us as creating this knowledge rather than discovering it. Um, and so, um, you know, that means creating new solutions for social problems as they emerge and, and the world changes. Um, so that's kind of um, how I suppose the ins and outs of being the critic and conscience of society work in the social sciences and the humanities, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, it also the thing point two is that I think universities have the ethical and moral obligation to be supporting that kind of research. Um, and so, to some extent, um, it's useful to play their game to you get access to those resources, um, especially because, um, like, because I, I, you know, I've done I've done community research work, so to speak, like outside of the institution before. Um, so, for people against prisons, Aotearoa, I used to be part of a working group where we would um, prepare submissions for Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, to speak on like bills that are on the table and go to select committee and present and talk with the MPs about like you know what we think about this bill or whatever, um, and you know that work was grueling and it involved like pouring through official information act requests and the data that come out of those, um, and doing the research all on our own time and always into the evenings of course and it really sucked like it was I was you know we were driven by this code papa you know we wanted to make the world a better place and we thought that you know we need to push back against um, just uh, uh, what is, what's the term penal populism this idea that prisons can solve problems at all mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so you know we push back through that on the on, on legislative grounds as well which is what this project this sort of sub project within the organization was about doing this parliamentary advocacy if you will um, but you know we did not have the same resources to um, do that research. well some of us did and they were doing it through you know um, doing postgraduate research actually oh, scholarships through the universities um, who were able to drive and do a lot more of the work in that space um, and so I noticed that um, and um, you know said okay well maybe the university isn't this completely problematic institution that I need to write off um, <laughs> but maybe it's something that we can use so um, yeah by the time I got to my postgraduate study it was like oh well let's start figuring out not just how to get these degrees and finish these theses and get published these articles and things like that but to do so in a way that um, is of benefit to our movements mm-hmm. and to um, and you know there's, there's a scholarship about this activist academic um, space and how to do it well <laughs> um, I'm really inspired by this Irish scholar named Lawrence Cox who has written a lot about how to do research, um, formal research, I guess, within university systems um, that are of benefit to social movements. Um, and so um, once I got into my PhD and I was specifically looking at Tariti education um, as a social movement, I learned as well that in more recent decades, um, just how, like, quote-unquote professional research um, has been used for that movement. Um because it used, there was a point in the movement's history, for better or for worse, um, I'm not making any judgments or conclusions here, but there was a point where um, there was a bit more centralised organising. Mm-hmm. So there was this uh, this um, central thing called Network Waitangi. Um, and a few of the treaty education groups across the country today still keep that name. So there's Network Waitangi Ototahi down in Christchurch, um, Network Waitangi Fangare up north, um, but it's not really a centralized network anymore. Um, but at the time, because there was this centralized organ of the movement going on, um, it was able to bring people together. You'd have these com- like, I don't know if it was conferences or some kind some kinds of gatherings where people ar- around the country were able to share their perspectives and experiences of doing this work, this treaty education, and everyone could learn and benefit from each other's learning from each other's experiences use that to inform strategies, you know, discuss um, whatever big thing is happening that's affecting the movement um, and having to inform its strategies. So one of the big ones was in the 90s when, um, in the early 90s, when the national government, the first neoliberal national government came in and they made these enormous cuts to benefits. Um, and so and just, we're just trying to basically scrap social welfare entirely. Um, and what that means is that a lot of people who've kind of almost been full-time activists in a way couldn't afford to anymore. They had to make a living now. So 
the end, um, there was also a point, I'm pretty sure it was Network Waitangi, but there was a some sort of body focused on treaty education that was actually getting some government funding. Oh, wow. That also dried up in the 90s. So that one probably would have um, you know, informed the capacity for people around the country to convene and have these conversations. Um, and those things were no longer by the 2000s. Um, but two of the postgraduate theses that are big and important parts of like the foundations in my research are two treaty educators, one who did a PhD and one who did a master's um, in the 2000s, where they actually used the resources of being able to do a PhD um, to organize basically convening um, those activists again, those treaty educators. Um, so... I almost see like this research as um, helping to facilitate that continual process of action and reflection, action and reflection, mm-hmm. um, or the, the, the academic word for that is praxis, but you can also probably just define as practice. If your practice is to go do some treaty education, run a workshop, reflect on how it went, and use that to inform the next time you do the workshop, praxis. <laughs> um, that's the general sort of praxis of the, of the movement, is to do that thing. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but being able to reflect not just on like on the micro scale of your own local community and the workshops that you run there, um, but to reflect on a national scale on you know where th- how things are changing. So you know we've had. So what I want to do um, is hopefully be able to convene people and um, share their ideas with each other, help facilitate the sharing of ideas between people as you know as far north as Fangare, possibly even as far south as Bluff. I don't know yet. Um, at least as far south as Dunedin. Um, and you know, be sharing those ideas and experiences, and also just how everyone's responded to big changes in our socio-political environment. So you know, if we've, we had the Matike Mai um, report in 2016, which was this um, the um, basically a working group that went and basically consulted the entire Maori world, hundreds and hundreds of hui between I think it was 2010, 2014, 2015. Wow. Um, what, with the question, what would a society that honors Tatiriti look like? And so concluded, the, their report in 2016 um, concluded that uh, we basically need a, a constitution that's based on tikanga Maori and Maori values um, that has, and they didn't. They didn't go so far as to actually propose a singular model for what that would look like mm. um, constitutionally. Um, but the general idea is that there are these different spheres of influence, which I've been talking about continually here. Right? There's that rangatira sphere of influence. There's the kawanatanga sphere of influence, and there's that relational one where we come together. Um, that was a product. That that idea. Mm. Um, and, you know, ideas like that, like the, the idea of there, of there being a, a constitution, has definitely gone on for centuries and centuries. Ever since Maori in the late nineteenth century were asking for a, par- a separate parliament, um, you know, this idea of constitutional um, uh, transformation and having these two nations be able to speak to each other. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Headscarfs and Good Yarns. To keep spinning the yarns, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Headscarfs and Good Yarns or email us at headscarfsandgoodyarn at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.